Chapter 21 of Reed Anthony Cowman, an autobiography by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fruits of Conspiracy With a loss of fully 15,000 cattle staring me in the face, I began planning to recuperate the fortunes of the company. The cattle convention, which was then over, was conspicuous by the absence of all northern buyers. George Edwards had attended the meeting, was cautious enough to make no contracts for the firm, and fully warned me of the situation. I was in a quandary, with an idle treasury of over a million. My stewardship would be subject to criticism unless I became active in the interests of my company. On the other hand, a dangerous cloud hung over the range, and until that was removed, I felt like a man who was sent for and did not want to go. The falling market in Texas was an encouragement, but my experience of the previous winter had had a dampening effect, and I was simply drifting between adverse winds. But once it was known that I had returned home, my old customers approached me by letter and personally, anxious to sell and contract for immediate delivery. Trail drovers were standing aloof, afraid of the upper markets, and I could have easily bought double my requirements without leaving the ranch. The grass was peeping here and there. Favorable reports came down from the reservation, and still I sat idle. The appearance of Major Hunter acted like a stimulus. Reports about the new administration were encouraging, not from our silent partner, who was not in sympathy with the dominant party, but from other prominent stockholders who were. The original trio, the little major, our segundo, and myself, lay around under the shade of the trees several days and argued the possibilities that confronted us on trail and ranch. Edwards reproached me for my fears, referring to the time nineteen years before, when as common hands we fought our way across the staked plain and delivered the cattle safely to Fort Sumner. He even taunted me with the fact that our employers then had never hesitated, even if half the Comanche tribe were abroad, roving over their old hunting grounds, and that now I was afraid of a handful of army followers, contractors, and owners of bar concessions. Edwards knew that I would stand his censure and abuse as long as the truth was told, and with the Major acting as peacemaker between us, I was finally whipped into line. With a fortune already in hand, rounding out my forty-fifth year, I looted the treasury by contracting and buying sixty thousand cattle for my company. The surplus horses were ordered down from above, and the spring campaign began in earnest. The old firm was to confine its operations to fine steers, handling my personal contribution as before, while I rallied my assistants and we began receiving the contracted cattle at once. Observation had taught me that in wintering beeves in the north it was important to give the animals every possible moment of time to locate before the approach of winter. The instinct of a dumb beast is unexplainable, yet unerring. The owner of a horse may choose a range that seems perfect in every appointment, 
but the animal will spurn the human selection and take up his abode on some flinty hills and there thrive like a garden plant. Cattle, especially steers, locate slowly, and a good summer's rest usually fortifies them with an inward coat of tallow and an outward one of furry robe against the wintry storms. I was anxious to get the through cattle to the new range as soon as practical, and allowed the sellers to set their dates as early as possible, many of them agreeing to deliver on the reservation as soon as the middle of May. Ten wagons and a thousand horses came down during the last days of March, and early in April started back with 30,000 cattle at company risk. All animals were passed upon the Texas range, and on their arrival at the pasture, there was little to do but scatter them over the ranch to locate. I reached the reservation with the lead herd and was glad to learn from neighboring cowmen that a suggestion of mine made the fall before had taken root. My proposition was to organize all the cattlemen on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe reservation into an association for mutual protection. By cooperation, we could present a united front to our enemies, the usurpers, and defy them in their nefarious schemes of exacting tribute. Other ranges beside ours had suffered by fire and fence cutters during the winter just past, and I returned to find my fellow cowmen a unit for organization. A meeting was called at the agency. Every owner of cattle on the reservation responded, and an association was perfected for our mutual interest and protection. The reservation was easily capable of carrying half a million cattle. The tribes were pleased with the new order of things, and we settled down with a feeling of security not enjoyed in many a day. But our tranquil existence received the shock within a month, when a cowboy from a neighboring ranch, and without provocation, was shot down by Indian police in a trader's store at the agency. The young fellow was a popular Texan, and as nearly all the men employed on the reservation came from the South, it was with difficulty that our boys were restrained from retaliating. Those from Texas had little or no love for an Indian anyhow, and nothing but the plea of policy in preserving peaceful relations with the tribes held them in check. The occasional killing of cattle by Indians was overlooked until they became so bold as to leave the hides and heads in the pasture, when an appeal was made to the agent. But the aborigine, like his white brother, had sinful ways, and the influence of one evil man can readily combat the good advice of a half a dozen right-minded ones. And the Quaker agent found his task not an easy one. Cattle were being killed in remote and unfrequented places, and still we bore with it, the better class of Indians, however, lending their assistance to check the abuse. On one occasion, two boys and myself detected a band of five young bucks skinning a beef in our pasture, and nothing but my presence prevented a clash between my men and the thieves. But it was near the wild plum season, and we were making preparations to celebrate that event. The killing of a few Indians might cause distrust and we dropped out of sight and left them to the enjoyment of their booty. It was pure policy on my part. 
we could shame or humble the Indian, and if the abuse was not abated, we could remunerate ourselves by withholding from the rent money the value of cattle killed. Our organization for mutual protection was accepted by our enemies as a final defiance. A pirate fights as valiantly as if his cause were just, and through intermediaries the gauntlet was thrown back in our faces and notice served that the conflict had reached a critical stage. I never discussed the issue direct with members of the clique, as they looked upon me as the leader in resisting their levy of tribute, but indirectly their grievances were made known. We were accused of having taken the bread out of their very mouths, which was true in a sense, but we had restored it tenfold to where it was entitled to go, among the Indians. With the exception of an occasional bottle of whiskey, none of the tribute money went to the tribes, but was divided among the usurpers. They waxed fat in their calling and were insolent and determined, while our replies to all overtures looking to peace were firm and to the point. Even at that late hour, I personally knew that the clique had strength and reserve, and had I enjoyed the support of my company, would willingly have stood for a compromise. But it was out of the question to suggest it, and, trusting to the new administration, we politely told them to crack their whips. The fiesta which followed the plum gathering was made a notable occasion. All the cowmen on the reservation had each contributed a beef to the barbecue. The agent saw to it that all principal chiefs of both tribes were present, and after two days of feasting, the agent made a Quaker talk, insisting that the bond between the tribes and the cowmen must be observed to the letter. He reviewed at length the complaints that had reached him of the killing of cattle, traceable to the young and thoughtless, and pointed out the patience of the cattlemen in not retaliating, but in spreading a banquet instead to those who had wronged them. In concluding, he warned them that the patience of the white man had a limit. And while they hoped to live in peace, unless the stealing of beef was stopped immediately, double the value of the cattle killed would be withheld from the next payment of grass money. It was in the power of the chiefs present to demand this observance of faith among their young men, if the bond to which their signatures were attached was to be respected in the future. The leading chiefs of both tribes spoke in defense, pleading their inability to hold their young men in check as long as certain evil influences were at work among their people. The love of gambling and strong drink was yearly growing among their men, making them forget their spoken word until they were known as thieves and liars. The remedy lay in removing these evil spirits and trusting the tribes to punish their own offenders, as a red man knew no laws except his own. The festival was well worthwhile and augured hopefully for the future. Clouds were hovering on the horizon, however, and while at Ogallala I received the wire that a complaint had been filed against us at the National Capitol, and that the President had instructed the Lieutenant General of the Army to make an investigation. Just what the inquiry was to be was a matter of conjecture, possibly to determine who was supplying the Indians with whiskey, or probably our friends at Washington 
were behind the movement, and the promised shake-up of army followers in and around Fort Reno was materializing. I attended to some unsettled business before returning, and on my arrival at the reservation, a general alarm was spreading among the cattle interests. Caused by the cocksure attitude of the usurpers, and a few casual remarks that had been dropped. I was appealed to by my fellow cowmen, and, in turn, wired our friends at Washington, asking that our interests be looked after and guarded. Pending a report, General P. H. Sheridan arrived with a great blare of trumpets at Fort Reno for the purpose of holding the authorized investigation. The general's brother, Michael, was the recognized leader of the clique of army followers, and was interested in the bar concessions under the sutler. Matters, therefore, took on a serious aspect. All the cowmen on the reservation came in, expecting to be called before the inquiry, as it was clear that a fight must be made to protect our interests. No opportunity, however, was given the Indians or cattlemen to present their side of the question and when a committee of us cowmen called on General Sheridan, we were cordially received and politely informed that the investigation was private. I believe that forty years have so tempered the animosities of the Civil War that an honest opinion is entitled to expression, and with due consideration to the record of a gallant soldier, I submit the question. Were not the owners of half a million cattle on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Reservation entitled to a hearing before a report was made that resulted in an order for their removal? I have seen more trouble at a country dance, more bloodshed in a family feud, than ever existed or was spilled on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Reservation. The Indians were pleased, the lessees were satisfied, yet by artfully concealing the true cause of any and all strife, a report, every word of which was as sweet as the notes of a flute, was made to the President, recommending the removal of the cattle. It was found that there had been a gradual encroachment on the liberties of the tribes, that the rental received from the surplus pasture lands had a bad tendency on the morals of the Indians, encouraging them in idleness, and that the present system retarded all progress in agriculture and industrial arts. The report was superficial, religiously concealing the truth, but dealing with broad generalities. Had the report emanated from some philanthropical society, it would have passed unnoticed or been commented on as an advance in the interests of a worthy philanthropy, but taking as a whole, it was a splendid specimen of the use to which words can be put in concealing the truth and cloaking dishonesty. An order of removal by the President followed the report. Had we been subjects of a despotic government and bowed our necks like serfs, the matter would have ended in immediate compliance with the order. But we prided ourselves on our liberties as Americans, and an appeal was to be made to the first citizen of the land, the President of the United States. A committee of Western men were appointed, which would be augmented by others at the National Capitol and it was proposed to lay the bare facts in the chief executive's hands, and at least ask for a modification of the order. The latter was ignorant in its conception, brutal and inhuman in its intent, 
ending in the threat to use the military arm of the government unless the terms and conditions were complied with within a given space of time. The Cheyenne and Arapahoe Cattle Company alone, not to mention the other members of our association, equally affected, had 125,000 head of beeves and threw steers on its range, and unless some relief was granted, a wayfaring man, though a fool, could see ruin and death and desolation staring us in the face. Fortunately, Major Hunter had the firm's trail affairs so well in hand that Edwards could close up the business, thus relieving my active partner to serve on the committee. He and four others offering to act in behalf of our association in calling on the president. I was among the latter, the only one in the delegation from Texas, and we accordingly made ready and started for Washington. Meanwhile, I had left orders to start shipping with a vengeance. The busy season was at hand on the beef ranges, and men were scarce. But I authorized the foreman to comb the country, send a dodge if necessary, and equip ten shipping outfits and keep a constant string of cattle moving to the markets. We had about 65,000 single and double wintered beeves, the greater portion of which were in prime condition, but it was the through cattle that were worrying me, as they were unfit to ship, and it was too late in the season to relocate them on a new range. But that blessed hope that springs eternal in the human breast kept us hopeful that the President had been deceived into issuing his order, and that he would right all wrongs. The more sanguine ones of the Western delegation had matters figured down to a fraction. They believed that once the chief executive understood the true cause of the friction existing on the reservation, apologies would follow. We should all be asked to remain for lunch, and in the most democratic manner imaginable, everything would be righted. I had no opinions, but kept anticipating the worst. For, if the order stood unmodified, go we must, and in the face of winter, and possibly accompanied by Negro troops. To return to Texas meant to scatter the cattle to the four winds. To move north was to court death, unless an open winter favored us. On our arrival at Washington, all senators and congressmen shareholders in our company met us by appointment. It was an inactive season at the Capitol, and hopes were entertained that the President would grant us an audience at once. But a delay of nearly a week occurred. In the meantime, several conferences were held, at which a general review of the situation was gone over, and it was decided to modify our demands, asking for nothing personally, only a modification of the order in the interest of humanity to dumb animals. Before our arrival, a congressman and two senators, political supporters of the chief executive, had casually called to pay their respects, and incidentally inquired into the pending trouble between the cattlemen and the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Indians. Reports were anything but encouraging. The well-known obstinacy of the President was admitted. It was also known that he possessed a rugged courage in pursuance of an object or purpose. Those who were not in political sympathy with the party in power characterized the president as an opinionated executive and could see little or no hope in a personal appeal. 
However, the matter was not to be dropped. The arrival of a deputation of cattlemen from the West was reported by the press, their purposes fully set forth, and in the interim of waiting for an appointment, all of us made hay with due diligence. Major Hunter and I had a passing acquaintance at both the War and Interior Departments, and taking along senators and representatives in political sympathy with the heads of those offices, we called and paid our respects. A number of old acquaintances were met, holdovers from the former regime, and a cordial reception was accorded us. Now that the boom in cattle was over, we expressed a desire to resume our former business relations as contractors with the government. At both departments, the existent trouble on the Indian reservations was well known, and a friendly inquiry resulted which gave us an opportunity to explain our position fully. There was a hopeful awakening to the fact that there had been a conspiracy to remove us, and the most friendly advances of assistance were proffered in setting the matter right. Public opinion is a strong factor, and with the press of the capital airing our grievances daily, sympathy and encouragement were simply showered down upon us. Finally, an audience with the President was granted. The Western delegation was increased by senators and representatives until the committee numbered an even dozen. Many of the latter were personal friends and ardent supporters of the chief executive. The rangemen were introduced, and we proceeded at once to the matter at issue. A congressman from New York stated the situation clearly, not mincing his words and condemning the means and the procedure by which this order was secured, and finally asking for its revocation, or a modification that would permit the evacuation of the country without injury to the owners and their herds. Major Hunter, in replying to a question of the President, stated our position, that we were in no sense intruders, that we paid our rental in advance, with the knowledge and sanction of the two preceding Secretaries of the Interior, and only for lack of precedent was their endorsement of our leases withheld. It soon became evident that countermanding the order was out of the question, as to vacillate or waver in purpose, right or wrong, was not a characteristic of the chief executive. Our next move was for a modification of the order, as its terms required us to evacuate that fall, and every cowman present accented the fact that to move cattle in the mouth of winter was an act that no man of experience would countenance. Every step, the why and wherefore, must be explained to the President, and at the request of the committee, I went into detail in making plain what the observations of my life had taught me of the instincts and habits of cattle. Why, in the summer, they took to the hills, mesas, and uplands, where the breezes were cooling and protected them from insect life. Their ability to foretell a storm in winter and seek shelter in coolies and broken country. I explained that none of the cattle on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Reservation were native to that range, but were born anywhere from three to five hundred miles to the south, fully one half of them having arrived that spring to acquaint an animal with its new range in cattle parlance to locate them was very important that every practical cowman moved his herd to a new range with the grass in the spring in order that ample time should be allowed to acclimate and familiarize them 
with such shelters as nature provided to withstand the storms of winter. In concluding, I stated that if the existing order could be so modified as to permit all through cattle and those unfit for market to remain on the present range for the winter, we would cheerfully evacuate the country with the grass in the spring. If such relief could be consistently granted, it would no doubt save the lives of hundreds and thousands of cattle. The President evidently was embarrassed by the justice of our prayer. He consulted with members of the committee, protesting that he should be spared from taking what would be considered a backward step, and after a stormy conference with intimate friends, lasting fully an hour, he returned and in these words refused to revoke or modify his order. If I had known, said he, what I know now, I never would have made the order, but having made it, I will stand by it. Laying aside all commercial considerations, we had made our entreaty in behalf of dumb animals, and the President's answer angered a majority of the committee. I had been rebuked too often in the past by my associates easily to lose my temper, and I naturally looked at those whose conscience balked at paying tribute, while my sympathies were absorbed for the future welfare of a quarter million cattle affected by the order. We broke into groups in taking our leave, and the only protest that escaped anyone was when the New York State representative refused the hand of the executive, saying, Mr. President, I have my opinion of a man who admits he is wrong and refuses to write it. Two decades have passed since those words, rebuking wrong in high places, were uttered, and the speaker has since passed over to the silent majority. I should feel that these memoirs were incomplete did I not mention the sacrifice and loss of prestige that the utterance of those words cost, for they were the severance of a political friendship that was never renewed. The autocratic order removing the cattle from the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Reservation was born in iniquity and bore a harvest unequaled in the annals of inhumanity. With the last harbor of refuge closed against us, I hastened back and did all that was human to avert the impending doom, every man and horse available being pressed into service. Our one hope lay in a mild winter, and if that failed us, the affairs of the company would be closed by the merciless elements. Once it was known that the original order had not been modified, and in anticipation of a flood of western cattle, the markets broke, entailing a serious commercial loss. Every hoof of single and double wintered beeves that had a value in the markets was shipped regardless of price. While I besought friends in the Cherokee Strip for a refuge for those unfit and our holding of through cattle. Fortunately, the depreciation in livestock and heavy loss sustained the previous winter had interfered with stocking the outlet to its fall capacity, and by money, prayers, and entreaty, I prevailed on range owners and secured pasturage for 75,000 head. Long before the shipping season ended, I pressed every outfit belonging to the firm on the Eagle Chief in the service, and began moving out the through cattle to their new range. Squaw winter and snow squalls struck us on the trail, but with a time limit hanging over our heads, 
and rather than see our cattle handled by nigger soldiers, we bore our burdens, if not meekly, at least in a manner consistent with our occupation. I have always deplored useless profanity, yet it was music to my ears to hear the men arraign our enemies, high and low, for our present predicament. When the last beeves were shipped, a final round-up was made, and we started out with over 50,000 cattle in charge of 12 outfits. Storms struck us en route, but we weathered them and finally turned the herds loose in the face of a blizzard. The removed cattle, strangers in a strange land, drifted to the fences and were cut to the quick by the biting blasts. Early in January, the worst blizzard in the history of the plains swept down from the north, and the poor wandering cattle were driven to the divides and frozen to death against the line fences. Of all the appalling sights that an ordinary lifetime on the range affords, there is nothing to compare with the suffering and death that were daily witnessed during the month of January in the winter of 1885-86. I remained on the range and left men at winter camps on every pasture in which we had stock, yet we were powerless to relieve the drifting cattle. The morning after the great storm with others, I rode to a south string of fence on a divide, and found thousands of our cattle huddled against it, many frozen to death, partially through and hanging on the wire. We cut the fences in order to allow them to drift on the shelter, but the legs of many of them were so badly frozen that when they moved, the skin cracked open and their hoofs dropped off. Hundreds of young steers were wandering aimlessly around on hoofless stumps, while their tails cracked and broke like icicles. In angles and nooks of the fence, hundreds had perished against the wire, their bodies forming a scaling ladder, permitting late arrivals to walk over the dead and dying as they passed on with the fury of the storm. I had been a soldier and seen sad sights but nothing compared to this. The moaning of the cattle freezing to death would have melted a heart of an adamant. All we could do was to cut the fences and let them drift, for to halt was to die. And when the storm abated, one could have walked for miles on the bodies of dead animals. No pen could describe the harrowing details of that winter. And for years afterwards, or until their remains had a commercial value, a wayfarer could have traced the south line fences by the bleaching bones that lay in windrows, glistening in the sun like snowdrifts, to remind us of the closing chapter in the history of the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Cattle Company. End of chapter 21